Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown Podcast. Let's jump on that silver train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And I'm going to start off by mentioning IAS. It's the I Am Sober app. And you can find it in your app store with whatever device you're using, Apple, Android. I'm an Android fan. Yeah. And this is where pretty much everyone that is in the Sobertown podcast village, where every one of us, except I think two, have found uh, sobriety, have found a new way of living. And it's an amazing community with amazing people. And everybody there is getting sober. And you have day zero to who knows, whatever day. And there's different milestones that they celebrate. But is what it is, it's a bunch of uh, people from around the world getting sober. So uh, even if you're sober now and you need extra support, it's a great place just to go. You can put posts out there. You can encourage people. And you can be part of that community. And pretty much we're unofficially, everybody that's involved with Silvertown, we're unofficially, that's where we got sober was the I Am Sober app. Also, I want to give a huge shout out to King 13 with another amazing interview with Jay. And Jay is the host of a popular YouTube channel, Getting Sober, dot, 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 again. And Jay is just an amazing person. And he's an amazing host. And his YouTube channel is just off the charts. He's just, I just can't say enough about Jay who is doing everything that he does to reach down to pull the person that's suffering in their addictions to reach down and pull them out of the darkness. Also, Jay just got a website going, which is www.gettingsoberagain.com. Jump over there, check out his amazing website that he's built himself and get to know Jay uh, and visit him. He does live shows. He does, Man, he's just amazing with everything that he does with his YouTube channel and now his, his new website. And next, I want to mention, of course, SobertownPodcast.com. Elaine has just done a, an amazing update to our website, and it's just badass. That's the only way to say it, just badass. So when you go onto the, the website, in the upper right, you'll see start here, podcast episodes, contact, help support us. Just click on start here. And then that will take you to the new page where you can just scroll down. Um, you can put, throw in your email and to join our community. We have recovery resources, sobriety toolbox, sobriety discussions, your body on booze. We have amazing pictures before and after, sobriety tattoos. We have the wall of fame where people have sent in their posts. And we're also going to be putting, if somebody has a story out there that they want to email to us, we are going to start putting recovery stories within the wall of fame. So if you have a story and you want to tell your story, email it to us. And we will get your story in there. And then we also have the kids' toolboxes, which a Weeby has done for us. 
SilvertownPodcast.com. It's an amazing site. And if you scroll all the way down towards the bottom, you will see a link that will hook you up to the I Am Sober community where you can join the I Am Sober community also. SilvertownPodcast.com. Come and check us out. And now I want to welcome our guest, lovely Sober I Thrive, Viv. How are you doing? Good morning. How are you? I am doing fantastic, and I'm I'm so happy, Viv. Um, and we've talked, and I'm I'm so happy that you're you're going to share your story with us. You have an amazing story, Viv, and I'm just like blown away at like you just didn't start getting sober nine months ago. You've been working on this for a good ten years, right? Yeah, for years, for years, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I shared with you, I journaled about it, uh, for a minimum of probably two to three years before, because, um, as I just, I, in the way I journaled is, uh, that I was taught was to journal about the way you wanted to see things, not the way you saw things be. And it, in a way, it was a way for me to escape and dream, um, daydream like we do as kids, you know, we just kind of daydream about this or that and play with um, invisible, you know, friends and stuff like that. So for me, it was kind of telling the fairy tale of my sobriety, but it was the deep desire that I had. And I just, I couldn't do it. It was so difficult on my own. And this um, is progressive each and every time it just got worse and worse and worse. And I want to mention to like everybody right there, a lot of people, um, judge people by their sober time. And I just, that's why I think this is important because we don't know the backstory and we don't know how you fought your ass off the whole time. And then finally you get sober and people look at those numbers. Oh, they just have one, two days, a few months, nine months. But when it comes down to it, you've got years where you've been fighting. Oh yeah. It, it, it definitely. Um, I, called them sober uh, experiments. They were relapses. Because, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You, at the time, you can't um, uh, honestly be, be honest with yourself and say, I'm an alcoholic, you know, and I couldn't base myself as an alcoholic. I called it all kinds of things. And I was like, oh, you know, just it, it, uh, I, it was just, it was, it was crazy, but that word was a taboo word because I felt shame. And as shame, you're going to say, I'm going to try to do this for uh, 30 days. Couldn't get there. 27 days, nine days, 10 days. Those, all of those sober experiments were relapses. Those happened for years. And like I said, they were progressive. And they weren't public relapses. Because you weren't on IAS or nothing at that time. Oh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This was something that happened within my home. And I would uh, tell my husband, you know, I do you think I have a problem. And he was like, no, you're fine. You're fine. Because everything was thriving on the surface as the business. But um, what I've come to learn is that most of us, uh, push ourselves so much to distract ourselves in life and or we're trying to make up for stuff that when we drink to prove that we're not 
good. We're not alcoholics. And so it's a, it's a routine. It's a routine. And because you, you maybe at that time you don't fall, that's what the face of alcoholism is. It doesn't, you don't know what it looks like. We would talk about that. We know that it looks bloated, but we don't know what it looks like in, in itself. I, you know, does it, is it the person? Is it the banker? Is it the professor? Is it the, a guy that works behind the cash register at, at a gas station? It just, this doesn't know um, money, social status. If you're a woman, if you're a man, if you're both, it just, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't. So that brings us, let's see how you got to that point. Um, so I, I asked you to like, bring up some of your youth. Why don't we get back? To yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So uh, my mom and my dad, my dad is a, was a world war II veteran. Um, he's Navy or he was Navy. Um, and my mom's a Mexican from Mexico. Um, and uh, basically I grew up in a very uh great environment or at least that's what my mind tells me now <laughs> you know because uh when i i remember my dad just um he's he didn't drink every day but i do remember as a kid around the age of five and seven that on hard days he had it work five seven nine you know um great great guy great man you know very responsible for his family um, loving father. However, he did have those days when he had a bad day at work. We didn't know. And he would just drink and to the point of blackout. And I saw, uh, I know now it, it was a blackout because he would decide to, when he drank to do home improvement to the house. And one of my earliest memories was that my dad decided to take out the kitchen window because he was going to replace it. But, you know, he got so drunk that the next morning or that night, I was like, oh my God, I'm a kid. I'm seven years old. And I'm thinking, oh my God, any, anybody can come through here as a, as a kid. And I MacGyvered a way to get cans all strung up together. So if somebody came through the window, the cans would, would make noise. The next morning, my dad wakes up and he's like, who did this? And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is you, you know? So I, I kind of, I remember more, like more and more that growing up, I saw bad day, he would drink. It wasn't often. I'm not going to even say that it was often. It was, I don't know, once every couple of months, but that's how he handled his problems. And I think some way, somehow I, I probably internalized that stuff. Um, because I, as I was growing up, um, I'm from California, from LA and Los Angeles. <clears throat> and what would end up happening where I grew up in, it was uh, since I'm, I, I, we're talking about the seventies, I'm 50 now. And um, in the, that was an interracial marriage. So when I would go to school, um, I just really didn't fit in because the social structure was more Hispanic. So I kind of felt out of place. So in junior high, I wanted to feel be in place. So I hung out with all the homies 
my next door neighbor were gangbangers. Um, this is LA. Yeah, this is LA. Yeah, the neighborhood started to change. And the only place that I felt probably acceptance um, was with people that, that, you know, had that gang mentality and structure because you do get a lot of support. And I'm an only child. So no brothers, no sisters, no nothing. So I started hanging out with them and um, I was smoking pot and it just got, you know, I was 12, 13 years old. And that's what I was just doing, just hanging out. And my, my dad had retired. He, he was much older than my mom um, when I was in junior high. And I was just doing my shenanigans back and forth. And my mom, when my dad went finally to the doctor after one year of retirement, they had told him he had seven months to live. So at the time, I'm 12 years old, I really now I look back and I really didn't understand what was happening or I felt that he wasn't going to die. There was no way he was going to die. They just, diagnosed you know, him as having cancer, right? Colon cancer. You have seven months to live. And my dad, um, he, this is the type of person that he was. He structured his, his own funeral, his own burial. Um, he was preparing my mom and me for when he was gone. And at the same time, now my mom's taking care of him at home. She's starting to see that I'm walking through, you know, the front door after school. And I say that in quotations because I wasn't going to school. I was ditching and I was hanging out and um, I was just, you know, just trying rebellious, very rebellious. Um, and so she went to school to go check on me because she thought there's something, you know, that instinct that you have as a parent, there's something up. I don't know what it is. So she went to, to school. I, I think my dad was like uh, probably a month and a half, you know, in knowing all of this information. And I had been ditching, skipping school for 27 days. And that was more than enough for her to say, um, hey, we're going to go take a trip to downtown LA. And I was like, we are like the next day I, I, or the day that I came home, she knew what had happened. She yelled at me, scolded me, you know, told me, what were you doing? Where did you go? You know, and that, all that type of stuff. And I was like, I, you know, I was just hanging out and I wasn't doing well at school. I just, it, it just school, I, I couldn't understand it. And I, it was just too tedious for me. So uh, she basically took me down to downtown LA and started buying me clothes the next morning. And then in the, one of the last stops, it was a suitcase. And uh, I was like, why is she buying suitcase? And then I, I had one aunt, they, my mom only had one family member because everybody else is in Mexico. One family member that lived down in, um, down in LA and picked us up in downtown and they I just saw these two women stuffing the, all the clothes inside that suitcase and we're headed down to LAX and I'm like what the hell is happening and she goes I cannot take care of you right now your dad is dying and you need to get on that plane and so she I was like 13 years old she put me on that plane with her 
and she took me to Mexico City and to my other, her sisters, and um, basically just told me, okay, this is your new life. I can't take care of you. And I don't know where you're headed. So this is your new life. So I spent three years in Mexico and uh, I was 12. So by 15, but it was one of those schools where we wore uniforms and no makeup. And it was a lot of structure and it was intense. Um, it was great. I loved it. I mean, I became honor roll and my mom couldn't believe it, but there was nothing else to entertain me except just. And your aunt and had binoculars. Watching oh, yeah. You, right? oh yeah. Because she was like so scared to death of what had I, what had I been into? Cause my mom was like, well, I, I caught her smoking pot and you're thinking about this. This is like the eighties and you're considered a drug addict if you're smoking marijuana and especially a young kid like myself so they thought god knows what i was into so when i you know i wanted to just get out of the house she would sit there in the balcony in the back of the park just to stare at me so it was like you have a guard on you with the binoculars on staring at me doing laps or running and i was like i was under i was under the microscope um but it's good it gave you structure it gave me structure. It gave me structure. Um, one of the, since it's uh, to tell our story, one of the things was my dad had passed away and um, I, I, I felt it. I felt that he had passed, but nobody wanted to tell me because I think at that point I was, everybody tells me I was in exams and they didn't want to ruin, you know, my tests and all that stuff. So I got, called in a couple of months later and to the principal's office and the principal sat me down and said, um, your dad passed away. So that's how I found out. Um, that was the, you know, it was pretty hard, but then at the age of 15, um, after my dad had passed, my mom was, all right, come, come back. Yeah. She's reformed. She's good. And I did, I came back. And then um, I think my mom was scared to death of just living in, you know, living without a husband that had taken care of her. And now she had to take care of me and her. And I remember with all the paperwork that she had and stuff that would come in the mail, she was like, okay, well, you're the one that speaks English. And I'm like 15, 16 years old. And she's like, translate these papers for me mortgage papers or whatever it was like I became the man of the house I was the adult in the in in the relationship so I had become her husband and it, it was it just made me grow up really fast um at the age of 15 uh, yeah about 15 years old I met someone at church and he was 20 my first boyfriend um like official boyfriend and I thought I was so in love. And um, so he asked me to marry him. And I think we were, I was like 15 and a half, somewhere in there. I was close to 16 years old. And I think my mom was just scared um, to take on the responsibility. And she was afraid that I, and now we talk about it. She was just afraid that I was going to 
slip back into gangs or she just, she was scared. She didn't know. So she, she felt that her best bet was to have a man in the house. And um, when he asked me to marry him, I was just, this was my first boyfriend. I was in love. And I, that's all I saw rose, rose colored glasses. I didn't see all the other stuff. And uh, I married him. I was 16 years old. And um, after we got married, uh, we moved to Guatemala, Central America. And at that point, once I moved over there, he was just, he, che- he was a cheater. He was a beater. It was a horrible time. My, now my mom says it was her thoughts of, I don't know if I could take care of her. So this guy loves her, let her get married to him. But it was just, it was hell. It was really bad. And uh, I was pregnant at that point. I'm close to being 17. So in my, I think in my survival, I basically asked him, you know, uh, I want to have the child in the U.S. Will you let me go? Because now he was my guardian. And he was like, I said, I'll come back. I'll come back after I have the baby. Just let's give the baby an opportunity to grow and, and from the U.S. have opportunities. And so I came back and I just knew I was never going to go back. I knew because I was like, uh-uh. Um, so I, here I had my daughter and I was, uh, close, I was almost 17. I was a couple of months from 17 years old. And, um, you know, just after, I think she was maybe six months old, she, he came and he was like, you know, I've, I've changed and things are going to be so much better. So they weren't, things kind of continued as, you know, uh, abusive relationship does. Um, it, it just was getting worse and worse, but I was like, I was still, uh, a child, And I went from having a dad uh, to having a second dad and looking at it that way because I didn't have a voice or I didn't have a vote. And basically, um, I, I, at the age of 18, I said, I thought to myself that I needed to, um, I needed to start working. I needed to kind of make my own money and I walked into a finance company office and I uh, just applied without even having a help bonded sign. And that's how I got into finance. I was a receptionist and I just started making my own money. But by the age of 20, even in an abusive relationship, I had my second child. And it was just, it was, I was getting... everything that I had, I was throwing it in my work because I wasn't drinking at that time. I wasn't doing anything because I thought to myself, I have these two little girls that I have to take a look, take care of. I, they asked me to come into this life. And I remember my dad when I was a kid and he, when he did drink, it scared me so much. So I didn't want to drink, um, to not scar them, but I was definitely scarring them in a different way with the, seeing the, uh, an abusive relationship. Um, it was till the age of 24 that I decided that that was enough. And I, my boss at the time, 
um, things just the abuse got out of out of control. Um, you know, I was getting beat and I just needed to get out. And and at that time, my boss, she was a female and her husband was um, a president of a, a construction company of a local union. And he told all the workers about what I was going through. And I had saved enough money to where I put a, de a deposit on an apartment and I didn't say anything. And I just, um, they helped me move while he was at work. They moved all the furniture and all the stuff. And when he came home, there was just a Dear John letter. And I hired an attorney. Boom. I love that. Yeah. I, it was, I just, I knew. I knew that the abuse was going to start carrying over to the kids. And I could see it going that way. So um, at that point, I didn't drink. I, I, you know what? I was a workaholic. And that was my vice. Uh, but the thing was that since now from, from where I started receptionist to where I had left him, now I had been given the opportunity to be a branch manager of a big bank. And it was in the mortgage division. I mean, I was like 25, 24, 25 years old. And because I was the branch manager, I was allowed to keep my kids in the, in the, um, little lobby area, not the lobby area, but the, the break room. And they would just, I'd pick them up from school and leave them there. But I was working endlessly and um, had restraining orders and all of that against my ex, which was very much abusive, trying to abuse at that time. But in one of the last times that he came through the door, and this was the last time that he came through the door, um, the girls were at church with my mom, thankfully. And um, he basically, I opened the door because I saw him there. He barged his way through and there was a phone and I was going to call the police 911. Well, he yanked it off the, he yanked it off the, I, I did dial it. He yanked it off the wall, threw it on the floor. And I guess the 911 person kind of heard this before that they did. And as he's trying to uh, strangle me um, up against the wall, uh, the, he, you could hear that the, the police and the police come. So he fled the scene and they basically followed him uh, and, and they arrested him. And that was the last time he ever bothered me. It, it just scared him so much. Wow. So years of yeah. abuse, years of abuse. And I think it's because I never reported it because I don't know. I think that someone that's in that situation doesn't realize how bad the situation is because you're in it. And I normalized that. Even though I didn't grow up with it, I normalized it. Maybe because I was so young when I first went into the relationship. So I normalized it. But um, at that point, another company offered me a job managing for them. And it was about, it was far. It was like a hundred miles away from where I originally was in Bakersfield. So Bakersfield to LA, it was far. It was far enough from him. And I just, I moved and um, I got full custody of my girls and everything. And that's all I wanted. I left, I left with nothing um, except for the 
furniture that I had and that was it. So um, I met a really cool person, very good, good guy five years later. And we had a great relationship, but there was just things lacking. Um, to no disrespect to him because he was very a very kind, gentle person. However, we were just, it was a 14-year marriage, but in that 14 years, we were business partners. That's all we were. There was, we were not partner partners. Um, and that was okay. That was okay with me because I had been through so much abuse that I didn't care. I just wanted to provide a good home for my daughters to grow up in. And I overlooked anything um, that was just, we weren't, we just, we were two people coexisting in a relationship like a brother and a sister. Um, but he was, he was, he was a kind person. He was kind to the girls. So um, mortgage crash came. And in the mortgage crash, which is all I knew how to do, and I worked every aspect of this, I had saved up some money. Um, we had saved up some money. And I had one of my uh, friend's girlfriend approach me and she's like, hey, we, you know, we're, there's nothing for us to do. There's no loans. What are we going to do? Why don't you, do you have any savings? And I said, yeah, I have like a hundred thousand saved up. And she had a hundred thousand saved up. She goes, let's put the money together. And let's go to the auctions and let's see if we can buy houses there. And so we went to the auctions and just through contacts, met somebody that basically, <clears throat> as she would look up the homes back in the office, I had my headset and I was in, I, I was the bidder and I was just bidding on these homes. And since it was a little bit of money um, that we had, but so we went to there's cheaper areas in LA. There's cheaper counties, like in every place I would imagine, like if you live in Beverly Hills, obviously it's going to be super expensive, but if you live um, somewhere a little bit in the outskirts, you're, it's more affordable. So we were, we were doing the more affordable, more affordable homes and we were fixing them. I was the one that was in charge of um, fixing them. I got uh, a crew together. It was survival. I got a crew together uh, to basically fix these homes, put them on the market. And so they could sell and turn the money and turn the money and turn the money. So what happened was um, I started diversifying, meeting people there at the auction to diversify our funds. And now, now that hundred thousand was closer to probably 250 each. So we had, you know, more and more money, capital available. Then short sales came in. People were short selling their home and we were buying them like that. Well, as I was diversifying the money, now what, what was happening was I only had to put 25% down on a home, attain a short-term loan at a high interest rate. But in that short-term loan that you have, instead of buying one house or two houses with whatever you have, you can diversify the, the, the amount and now you can buy 10 houses because then it's 25% on each home. Well, that grew for myself on my part to about 650,000. And then she had another 650,000. And uh, everything was going well. I mean, everything, uh, well, my drinking at that point, my girls, I, I was starting to drink because now they were about over 16 years old, 17 years old, 18 years old. 
And um, now they were older and I was drinking more. I was drinking more because I thought to myself, okay, now they're at an age that I'm not going to hurt them. I'm not going to scar them. You end up scarring them anyways. Um, It doesn't matter what age your kids are. Um, I just remember that. And it was now it was drinking a little bit more and it was, um, but it wasn't out of control. It was just, it was just, just drinking. It's like a normie would do or how we would think normies do, you know, Um, but it wasn't normal. I could tell it. it, I was having more and more abouts with alcohol, maybe once a month. Um, It was not normal. And every, and throughout my career on a bad day, I would resort to the bottle. I would, I would wait for the kids to go to bed and then I'd, you know, drink. So I I could see the patterns, Uh, but it wasn't as bad as it got which is one of the things with this alcohol is progressive. It's it, it, nobody starts out thinking, Oh my God, I am going to detox. I'm going to go all through all this shit when they start. Nobody does. <sighs> so at that point um, we had hooked up with somebody that had an escrow company An escrow company is where you put deposits down for each of those homes. And I was on my way to London on my 40th birthday. And because I wanted to spend two weeks out there and my business partner couldn't get a hold of the person that was holding our money at the escrow company um, for all these homes. So she went to the office as I'm at the airport waiting to take off. And she calls me up and she goes, "The, the office is cleaned out there is no furniture here. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, she fled. She's, there's nobody here. I go, we'll go to her house. She went to to her house because we knew we had known her. We knew her. And um, the neighbors told us, no, there was a moving van the night before. So the moving van, she had cleaned up her home. So God knows where she had gone. Later, so I I decided. And she's got over a million dollars of your money. Of my money, yeah. And all I had was money for emergencies tucked away at home in cash for an emergency. So that was the only thing that I had. Like, and I'm not talking about a lot of money. It was a it it was enough to hold me over for two three months. Um left for London because I thought to myself it doesn't matter if I'm going to have be broke here or I'm going to be broke in London it doesn't matter at least I'm I'm I'm, my problems are always going to come back in London I visited every pub and that's I just drank and drank and drank the whole time that's all I did when I came back I the FBI at that point had been alerted Come to find out, she stole a total of $22 million. Wow. It was, just, yeah, it was a ton, ton of people's funds. And I was devastated because I had kept up my marriage and persona at that time. Um, it was all about just appearances. And it wasn't about happiness. It was you know, just how did it look? How did I look from the outside? Um, 
just appearances. It was uh, very shallow. Uh, and I, and, and I drank for probably a good 30 days, sat in bed, drank and cried, drank and cried, drank and cried. At the end of 30 days, I thought to myself, um, at that point, mortgages had come back, you know, big banks were doing mortgages again. I, I'm going to have to start over. And I went to work for one of the banks and it was just starting over. But at that point, it brought up to the surface everything that was wrong in my life. And that one of the things that was wrong in my 14-year marriage was my marriage. And I decided, you know, I can continue this facade or I can just uh, end this. And um, I decided to end it. There was no fixing. I mean, I, we had tried over the 14 years to fix our relationship. Um, and like I said, out of respect for him, I, I don't really want to discuss what, how bad the relationship was, but it was uh, enough to where I, I was given permission to go outside of the marriage if I needed to. And when that happened, that I was given permission, I thought, what am I doing here? Why am I even in this thing? And if I've already lost everything and I'm going to have to start over and I'm going to have to continue a facade of a marriage just for the sakes of having it, I'd rather not have it. And I walked away. Um, at that point, just started over and had nothing. I had nothing. And I could, um, I met my husband now at work and we were friends for a whole, for about a year. I, I was single, went out. It, my being single was out of control because I was drinking a lot. And it was just, it, it just was things that were hitting me left and right. I was drinking quite a bit. And it was, um, now my daughter says I, she thought it was just going to be an eat, pray, love, but it turned out uh, to a girl, girl's gone wild. So <laughs> that was the relationship I had with myself. And I just, the girl's uh, gone wild. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <clears throat> I was just, I was trying to distract myself from, you know, everything that, that was going on with me having to start over. My girls were now, they were older, they were in their 20s. And I just, the idea that I was 40 something now and having to start over, that's how I felt like, oh my God, what am I doing? So it was just drinking, partying. I met my husband at work. We were friends for about a year and we were just really best friends. And um, after a year, he just came out and he was like, I've fallen in love with you. And I just couldn't, I never had dated or been with someone at work um, because I thought that's a big no-no. I got to see you if it doesn't work out. But he was relentless. And he was relentless, leaving notes on my car, um, you know, of I love you and all this stuff. He swept me off my feet. And we were just, we were best friends. Desire and, is a powerful emotion, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? And his desire, I it was like I said, relentless <clears throat> in his pursuit of happiness. 
with me. So I, you know, I gave in and I thought, you know what, this, I, I, I've met somebody that I truly click with as uh, friends and everything. And um, this was, it, it was great. I, we had a great relationship, just really wonderful. Uh, best friends, people would stop us and tell us that um, they had wished that, that they had, you know, a relationship like ours because we would kid around all the time. I mean, we were joking around, we were just, um, but what ended up happening after I lost everything, and I'm, I mean, I lost everything. I lost my house, I lost, uh, I got my car repoed. It was just, everything had fallen apart. And I remember, and he was, he was also going through his um, divorce also at the same time. So it was difficult for both. So of you us. lost We're- everything after you got hit with that robbery, with that lady taking your money, everything, everything. everything. I mean, yeah. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was trying to pawn my purses uh, to be able to put gas in my car. It had come to the point that uh, I remember this so vividly um, to the point that I had gone to a meeting outside of um from where I lived and I didn't have gas to get back and I had to ask a coworker for seven for whatever he had and he's like Viv I only have seven bucks on me uh, I said I'll pay you back come pay checks I didn't even have seven dollars at that point we're two broken people he had he was he was broken because he was going through his divorce and uh, you know divorce is is hard and it, it just, it really breaks you down. And I could understand that I was broken, but we made a great team in the sense that we were best friends and we knew each other like that. So we leaned on each other. And my, um, I compare it now to Rocky. When you see Rocky, that he loses everything. If, uh, I, I, I believe that scene is Polly basically makes a mistake with the IRS. So they take everything away from him. And he goes back to his home in Brooklyn where it all started out. Well, I moved back in with my mom um, where I had, where it all basically started out. And there was a jar inside the room and, and we would stick like dollars and quarters in there. And we would say it's our retirement fund and we would laugh because that's all we had. And um, like I said, I just, both of us just, uh, pawning stuff to get through it to pay rent and do but so we merged we started merging our business together and we merged our business together because he's a loan officer I'm a loan officer both doing amazing together um it, it, it was a good good team but at the same time we're still living at my mom's house um she's helping us out we're helping her out my daughters are there everything's fine. His son's there. Everything's fine. We start going, getting better in business. Um, but the drinking now at that point is on weekends and it's, uh, binge drinking on weekends for myself, but I consider it the binge drinking because it's on weekends. It's okay. I'm not drinking during the week. Um, it's just binge drinking. I really didn't think anything of it at that time. Truly. I never thought I had a problem. Um, 
then when we basically made it a little bit better that we were able to move out, the problem started um, with his ex, which um, it, it was just, it got ugly. It was like a, a custody battle and it, it got so horrible for both of us um, to where it was like a, like a death. It was a, a death and it was, it, it was just bad. <clears throat> um, my husband became the shadow of a man that I knew. And he went into his addictions. I went into my addictions, which was alcohol. And I drank a lot. Now I was drinking every day. I couldn't, um, I couldn't understand what was going on in my life. I couldn't understand because it was just the only coping mechanism that I had. And then I'll call it coping mechanism, but I actually, what I was doing is grieving. I was grieving the loss of him, of having him. I was grieving the loss of his son. And I just, what did I do? Now it's just me and him living together. And he was so distant and into himself and he wouldn't talk to me and I wouldn't talk to him. We were both just going into our depressions and mine was to hit the bottle every single day and wake up. And so the, this was now, at the same time, you guys have a business together too, though, right? Oh yeah, we we have a business together, but it it was it was just I think what ends up happening for me is that I think about it. I'm a, a workaholic because I've been through really difficult things in my life. So the two things that I know is to work and to drink. And he was, he basically was kind of in his own mental state and I couldn't do anything because I didn't know what was going on with myself. And every day was just drinking and the drinking got worse and worse. And it was going into um, I think we were going into the second uh, two year <clears throat> of just me falling into the depression and drinking. And in front of my clients, the, the, the business was thriving, everything, because I was keeping my, myself occupied mentally. But the way that I was doing it, it was, this was my routine. My routine was come around six o'clock, the witching hour. And I'd have two bottles of wine by myself um, because it, it, drinking wasn't really the issue for him at all. Um, had other things. And um, we both were dealing with the things, with the grief, the best we knew how with our addictions. And when I, I would drink my bottles of wine, I was blocking out. And in, in the blackouts of rage of being pissed off that he just wouldn't come out of his 
depression or whatever, every, anything and everything, I was becoming really short fused. I would go into tirades of flipping the TV, destroying furniture. And I would wake up the next morning and I would just be like, what happened? I couldn't, I was blacked out. I didn't know. And I started to just, I mean, the apologies weren't enough. They were becoming closer and closer. And, but my business was thriving. I mean, on the outside, everybody was looking. We were, we were at the top of our game. And in the morning, I started noticing this is um, almost right before, probably six months before I came to, to the sober app. I am, I, I, yes, I'm sober. I started noticing that when I was drinking at night, I couldn't even sleep that well. You can't sleep when you're drinking. Like that, all the sugar keep waking up. You got the sweats going on. Um, I was waking up and I was having uh, tequila, shots of tequila to kind of steady myself. But I still didn't think I had a problem because I was able to handle my, my shit. I was still on the phones with my clients. I was still navigating the day. I was still doing it. I was short fused. I was, you know, um, things would set me off. Uh, I, I disrespected people in the middle of that. And the, the thing is that when you're drinking, you don't realize this. You don't realize that even though, let's say you don't drink, let's say I had a couple of shots in the morning just to, to steady myself. And then that, that's it. Okay. So I'm talking to clients and I'm doing this, even though I wasn't drinking, the alcohol was still in my system. Even though I wasn't drunk, it was now part of me. So the person that I was, even when I wasn't drinking from, let's say, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., she's sober, quote unquote. I wasn't sober in the sense that you're so hungover, you're so, your, your fuse is so short that I was, I was an asshole. I wasn't. You know, I wasn't a conscious person to be able to, you know, um, monitor myself or uh, be be more um, understanding of others. I was just a total, I was a different person. And even though I felt, oh, this is who I am, I just don't take any shit from anybody. No. That's not who I, who I am. Um, and I, so you were waking up every morning at this time with the game or the game, the, um, the shame, the, the guilt, the remorse, seeing your TVs, probably you went through more than one TV. Um, a lot of your your living room (laughs) destroyed and all of that's burning on you too. Oh yeah. The, the anxiety. Because when I started coming to the point of drinking that I was waking up in the morning and I was looking at him and I was like, did we fight? And 
ever when you're waking up with that and you don't know did you fight i'm like i don't i didn't even remember how i got to bed and he would have to tell me no he got to the point that my alcoholism was so bad that and and he was so kind in in that sense that he would tell me viv i don't take anything personal when lola comes out because everybody named her Lola, because he said that my face, my whole family told me that your face changes, Viv. You're the way you, you know, um, and I feel I was repressed anger also in there that I was just lashing out. And I was just, I became a, a, a tyrant. I was a horrible person, horrible human being. And that shame just also made me drink. So I was on the loop on the loop of it. And it was just, it was progressive. And then, so I thought to myself, okay, Viv, it's not possible that you're going to end up like this. You're not going to end up just drinking. You got to stop. You can stop. You know, you can stop. These are conversations I'd have with myself. And so I would told myself that I was going to, and I told everybody, I'm going to do 30 days. At this point, I'm going to the gym I have somebody or the pandemic hits and and the pandemic hits we're on lockdown that also made it worse because now it was just now we're drinking from home and nobody has to see you and you know and it just it was a where I live the building where I live downstairs there's a um kind of like a pub and also across the way, there's a liquor store. All I have to do is cross the parking lot. And those, when I would, it, it, it was, it was bad. So it was so accessible to the point that he didn't know that I was going out and getting those little small uh, Patron bottles. And I would take the, the little Patron bottles and I would hide the cork or the evidence. And because just to, to keep myself from shaking. So it was just incrementally getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then when, uh, with the lockdown, it was just, there was no other alternative, but just to drink and get worse. But uh, my business was still thriving. Our business was still thriving. We're still doing it. Where I found, I started thinking to myself, this was like in December. I'm really having a problem because I was hiding the bottles of wine. Um, he was hiding the bottles of wine. I was finding the bottles of wine and filling them with water and corking them back up. And it was just, it was exhausting just to keep up the fucking facade of everything's okay and everything's not okay. And then I started asking him, do you think I have a problem? And he would be like, no, you're fine. You're okay. I think I, you're just in such denial that things are so bad that you just make it status quo just to survive. And when it really hit really, really, really bad, when I, when I knew, um, was we went for his his birthday we went down to Cancun and it was one of those all-inclusives 
and it had, you know, all inclusive, all the alcohol you could have in your room. All you have to do is just put your glass up there and you have tequila, you have everything, rum, everything. So um, it was a big milestone birthday for him. And I was finding myself drinking 24 seven. Uh, I would wake up and I was basically, by the time he would wake up, I was like three sheets to the wind and I was shaking. And I, he would tell me you're shaking. I was like, no, it's a diet pill or no, I had too much caffeine. No, it's because I was, I was in such denial of how bad it was. And I believe the denial was because if this is all I knew for the past 10 years was binge drinking and it had never gotten out of control, quote unquote. It never cost me my business. But even though, I mean, I didn't mention, even though four years back, I had talked to one of my coworkers and he was going, I, somebody, he was going through AA and he was the only one that I confided in. And I said, Hey, Tom, I think I might have a problem, man. And he was like, well, why don't you come and check out AA with me? And I went to AA and you know, it just, and, and God bless A for what they do or what their mission is and for anybody that, that, you know, that it's helped, but I didn't feel comfortable because the one, of course, Tom, where he was going, was mostly men. And I just didn't feel comfortable. It, I, I was embarrassed as a female. I was embarrassed as a, <clears throat> I, I was just, I couldn't. So I just went to one meeting and I just couldn't identify myself with anybody there and I was like no I'm not I'm not as bad off as everybody else is that's what I told myself and this wasn't really the first time that I mean you were watching video you were doing other things in the background trying to like sort out who you were in your addiction because you were like looking at videos and stuff too right yeah well right before the Cancun trip I started looking up in WebMD, it's so funny. I started WebMDing, am I, how do you know you're an alcoholic? And so all the things that would come up, you know, like having more than one or two drinks a week and all of this other stuff, I was like, what? <clears throat> and then, um, but a lot of, I mean, just the fact that I was looking that up should have been something like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Why are you looking this stuff up, right? And then I saw like the naltrexone. Also, I saw a video on YouTube of a lady that took naltrexone and it was like an inhibitor of all the, you know, the, the, the dopamine. And it basically cured her of not wanting to drink because I was trying to stop. I was actively trying to stop, but I wasn't telling anybody that it was, I'm trying to stop because I didn't want, I didn't want to be in shame that I couldn't. But it's, it, then it's, it was snowballing. It was, I was on that carousel, right? Of drink at night, drink in the morning to steady yourself. And then when I went to Cancun, it was drink was so available that now I was shaking. I started, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I really have a big, huge problem. In the background, I'm looking up now in Instagram. So uh, Instagram because I'm thinking I need a sober coach. I need somebody that's going to hold me accountable that I can, that can call me up and 
and we can talk about this and I'll see if I really have a problem because I wasn't sure if I had a problem. I was in denial of how horrible of a problem I had and what a shit show my life was. And even though you're looking things up, that's just amazing. Even though you're looking at things and even went to a, a meeting, you're still in denial. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it just denial was so bad that I, before I left to Cancun, I had interviewed a couple of, like I, I sent emails um, and this was on Instagram and I sent emails to some sober coaches and I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know. But this, there was this one person in particular that I came across and she had a blog and I went to her blog <clears throat> and I started reading her stories and I couldn't stop crying because every story that I read was my story of how she had tried to quit and how she um, had promised her husband on a trip that she wasn't going to drink. And when she got there, she got a cocktail. It was a work event. She had a cocktail. Um, when you, she walked through the door, they give, hand you your pina colada or whatever it is. And she said, and, and I thought, okay, what's one going to do? And then she had taken that drink in and she goes, and then I was gone. And I was like, oh my God, this is me. Because once the alcohol touches my lip, I fucking can't stop. I can't stop. And even though I say, and, and I would go in between, not every day, but it was just progressive. It was progressing. It was progressing. It was getting vicious because it was, yes, the destruction, the destruction of property, but the destruction of saying things when you're in the drunken stupor, things that you don't mean, things that I couldn't even fathom. Lola, that was your Lola. Oh, that was Lola talking I mean being that way with my girls being that I was a horrible drunk just a horrible drunk and then you would and wake I, up Viv and then I would wake up Viv and I would be like what happened yeah it was just like what happened I remember one of the times um that it got so bad was I had gotten into an argument with him the night before flipped the tv kept drinking and I just destroyed a lot of the apartment and um, I got behind the wheel and went to my mom's house and I showed up there and I was just, I was a mess. I, I can't remember. I was like at four or 5 a.m. And my mom and my girls were there and they were just furious. How could I get behind the wheel? I can't even believe I did shit like that. And it's just... You know, it's so embarrassing, but it's needed to get these things out because if I hadn't read blogs of people of her being so honest, I probably wouldn't be here because. So was that like the first time that you saw somebody you knew getting honest about addiction? It was somebody I didn't even know this woman. She lives in Chicago. I read her blogs and she was just honest. I didn't know about IAS yet. Um, on the, again, the naltrexone had that 
I got more about IAS. And that was the first time I heard I am sober uh, app. And because then, you were re- looking at a review or something. Is that I was looking at a review. About so was Dr. I. That's what I did. Yeah. And and I because I was like, I have to stop it and I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I guess then now checks on off of a YouTube because now I was so bad. I was thinking about, let me look at alcoholism. Let me look what addiction looks like. And I would look up at YouTubes of recovering alcoholics to see what their stories were, to see if it fit mine, to see if I was an alcoholic. So. And you were doing this on your own because your memory of the other um, going to the meeting um, didn't fit you, didn't fit you. So you were doing all this on your own. I was doing all this research on my own of, Am I an alcoholic? The question was, well, am I an alcoholic? Because I personally had in my view that in the in the type of environment that I'm in, everybody drinks. Everybody drinks. It is rare the person that does not. It's high performance sales. And it is just part of part of the business. And it's, and I can't speak for everyone, but it's so normalized the amount of alcohol that if I were to look at all these people that have um, assets, things, possessions, if you were to measure your barometer of, and I hate to put it this way, have they lost everything? Are they homeless? Are they, I mean, there's Skid Row out here. Are they on Skid Row? That was my view of what an ad- addiction looked like. That's common. Not, That's common. I had, I had no clue because that my the thought process was that's an alcoholic. That's an addict. An addict doesn't have nice things. An addict doesn't do well at their job. An addict doesn't um, do high performance sales. An addict doesn't have a book of business. So I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I basically, uh, made an appointment with this lady, um, in December. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm going to make an appointment uh, January 20th was the appointment date because that way I could drink through the holidays. And that way I can have my trip and drink through it and, and everything will be, and I'll just start fresh in the new year. But what ended up happening was when I went to Cancun and I couldn't stop drinking and I don't know how I even got on the plane because I felt like my knees were shaking so bad. And I thought I just need, I need to drink more and more. And we got back and um, I realized that where we were taking pictures in Cancun, I had blacked out for most of them. I couldn't remember them. I couldn't remember where, how I took those pictures. I couldn't remember the dinners. I was in those pictures. I was smiling, but I wasn't there. That really scared me. Wow. That's, that's powerful. I was like, and it's one of the pictures like on I am sober that says I'm doing this, you know, the reason I'm sober. And those, those, one of those are where I'm blacked out. One of those were the pictures that I put on there to remind myself why. 
because I black out and I hurt the ones I love. And after that, I felt so horrible because in our trip to Cancun, my husband had planned one of those dinners that that was one of the pictures, one of those dinners on the beach where it's romantic and everything. And instead of making it romantic, it was all about alcohol. How shit face can I get and blackout? So I was just, I was a shell. I was a shell. And that of a special woman. moment right there that was supposed to be so for you and him, you don't even remember. No, I, I don't remember it at all. And I mean, that breaks my heart. Um, but I'm here. I'm here. So. Okay, Viv. So everything has just come up to a head right here, right? You get back, you're seeing these pictures, you, you know, yeah. all the TVs you flipped, all the, all the shit you've talked to people, everything has come to a head. You're kind of tired of Lola, right? And yeah. you're deciding that you want some, some, a change in your life. What do you do? So I, I book my super coach um, for January 20th. I come back from Cancun and I decide that we're going to, I'm going to make it up to him and we're going to go to uh, Tijuana and we're going to go stay out there for three days, three, four days, because I had ruined um, his birthday vacation in Cancun. So I went to, to Tijuana and um, had this already disappointment set on the 20th. Then I had been, uh, I had been drinking again and I thought I'm going to control it. And I wasn't controlling it. I was basically um, drinking again, the same amount uh, at night. And now the thing was that I was going into the shakes every six hours. Every six hours, uh, I was needing alcohol. The tequila was no longer, it was no, it wasn't doing anything. It, I was still, I was sweating profusely. I was shaking and I was scaring the shit out of me because I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to have to drink now? And it was all internal because this is internal dialogue because you're so ashamed. And how am I going to tell him? I brought him out here to make it up to him. And I'm worse now than when I started. So I, it was January 17th, about 50, about seven. Uh, it was January 17th. And I told him, I had that call on the 20th and I cannot be shit faced. I cannot be shit faced for this zoom call that I'm going to have with the sober coach right off the bat. <clears throat> if I'm going to do this, I have to do this. So it was about eight, about eight o'clock at night. And I had my last drink, but even though I was having my last drink of tequila, I could, I wasn't, I, I was still shaking. It was still bad. My muscles were aching and it, everything hurt. And I think it just, the body just got, became so accustomed. I, and now I'm like, oh my God, what, what else, what else is there? So I'm in Tijuana and, um, I start at the, at the restaurant that I was at, one of the guys that was the waiter, he told me that he had been, um, in AA and it just came up 
And then I was telling him, I'm, this is my last drink. I can't stop shaking. He's a waiter and he's 20 years old kid. And I'm telling him my body, it really aches really bad. I, am I going to die? If I'm going to stop drinking tonight. And he was like, you're not going to die. Drink chamomile tea. And he, um, there was some like, uh, you know, like Bengay. He was like, put it all over your muscles. You'll make it through. It's okay. I went back to the hotel and I wouldn't have anything to drink. And I just basically surrounded myself with pillows. And I thought that in movies, you see people detoxing. And I thought only detox was for people on heroin because I had no clue that people detox from alcohol the way that it, that it happened. It was, I was throwing up, I was shaking. I was barely able to stand up out of bed. I was going into the shower. I was going with hot and, and cold <clears throat> water. I would come back, I would soak the bed. And this was for three days, heart palpitations were, I thought that my heart was gonna stop. And I, I'm like, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe I'm a spiritual person. I do believe that there is something bigger um, than all of us and that we are part of it. And I prayed to anyone or anything that could hear me. I please God, what turned out to be three days was a 10 day trip because I couldn't get across the border because it was so bad, the shaking. It was the heart palpitations were so horrible. And this could I have just, killed you, really. This could have killed no, you. I didn't know till later that it could have killed me. I had no clue. And that's because one of my daughter's friends asked me, hey, Viv, so why did you stop drinking? Because I put it on social media everywhere. And I went in and I told her she's a doctor. And she goes, you could have died. I had no clue. And I was just begging God and every deity, please don't let my heart stop. Don't let my kids bury me. I don't want to be a cliche and die in Tijuana in a hotel. You know, it was just all these thoughts. And I had on a loop, I will survive Gloria Gaynor. And it was, I was singing to alcohol, like I will survive. You know, I, I've got to, you know, I walk out that door. And it was just like, I was singing to alcohol. You're out of my life. This is it. It got so bad. The shakes were so intense. And my husband was like, just have a shot. It, it was, must have, it he tells me it scared him out of, it just scared him so bad. And I was like, relentless. No, no, I'm going through this. And it was three days sweating, throwing up. It was almost convulsing. It was that bad. It, everything, my legs, if I moved my foot one way, all of a sudden I'd get the Charlie horse and it would flip the muscle would flip the other way. I was just dying, but I wasn't going to give up. On the 20th, I met on a Zoom meeting with her for the first time. I looked like hell. My, I just, I can't even imagine what I look like. This I is your sober coach. This is my sober coach. and. Her name is Heather and she's amazing. She just looked at me and I just started crying and crying. And I, I mean, all through this process, I was crying. I was just a mess. I couldn't, it, 
control myself. And she was like, it looks like you just hit your bottom. And I was like, I don't want this anymore. I've been going three days through this and I don't want this anymore. You know, help me. And she was like, she just told me, she was like, we're going to do this together. Don't worry. We're going to do this together. And the first thing that she told me is I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for reaching out. I'm proud of you for being here. I'm proud of you. And you can never let me down, Viv. Whatever you do, whatever, however this process looks like, you can never let me down. So that in itself really helped me because there was someone I could actually reach out and talk to. And then, and then it just, like I said, I just needed to get my legs back and I came back. And I couldn't come back to my house also because my daughter was staying with us. And I didn't want her to see me like that, you know, sitting in the tub and, and all of that stuff. So she really helped me out. When I came back, I had remembered the IAS. I looked it up on Instagram and then I saw people posting about uh, the I am sober, like the hashtags. And I said, okay, I have my sober coach. That's once a week. She's going to help me with that. But then I thought, how the hell am I going to do it? I just, I was kind of scared. And even the waiter had told me, you're going to need a support group. And I was like, ah, am I? I'm not that bad. Still, I'm not that bad. I'm gray area of drinking because the rest of the stuff, I'm still handling my, my business and stuff. It was, it, that was, I was lying to myself so bad. I got on IAS. I looked at the app and it said that it was anonymous and it said that it was free. And then I downloaded it and then I put in all the information, you know, how much do you drink a day and all that, that stuff. And then I started by reading stories. I was an observer and I was still ashamed. And my husband was the one that told me, Viv, you should start posting. I was like, what am I going to say? And he was now, like, hold it. say that again. You're would- an observer. And you were ashamed. How long did that go on? You know, on my first post, I wrote it down uh, January 24th. So I counted, it was like seven days later after my initial uh, with the sober coach. So for those seven days, I observed. I observed posts. um, And the way that they put us on the app is basically everybody's on the same day. And you're going through it with everybody. It's like a wave. And then I would fast forward to a year, what a year would look like for hope. And um, then I'd go six months. And then uh, as I was reading those stories, it was just, I I could identify. I was like, oh my God, that's when it clicked. That's when it hit. I'm an alcoholic. How is it possible that everybody's sharing the same story that I have? How is it possible that people are all hiding wine bottles. How is it possible that people are shaking? How is it possible that all of us are waking up in the morning and we're having shots to cope? How was it possible that I'm down, I'm on the same day as 7,000 people. It was 7,000 plus people that day. I was like, this is, this is a fucking unbelievable. It blew my mind. And I was, I just couldn't believe it. And after the seven days was my first post. And basically I was just posting a picture of a cat that was wet and it was furious. 
And my post was like, I'm pissed. I am so pissed that I can never have a drink again. That I was so pissed off. I was, you know what? It felt like, it felt like as if I had had broken up with somebody that had wronged me so much and I was just pissed off at it. But at the same time, I was like, I can never see you again. And I was heartbroken. So much mixed emotions. It was mourning the death of someone that had been with me in the good times and the bad times, in the uh, the darkness, the 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 everything that you can think of. It was my friend that I drank. And it started out really as a nice relationship to forget and to mute the button of what was going on or celebrate celebrating something that was going on. And all of a sudden that friend was gone. Could never see that friend again. And I went through through another that. abusive relationship, huh? Correct. The worst of, of all abusive relationships that I could ever name. And I was reading the posts of other people. And and you know, Chef 56 and you know, uh Raulito, he came back in and the people that I started with, I was um it, it, dry boy it was someone that was with me uh what katie did next polychromatic we were all in the same boat and we were all like you can do it you can do it no you can do it you can do it and it was high-fiving each other now i was posting every day and, and you guys are encouraging each other each other because we're all going through a tough ride because i realized as i was detoxing and i didn't know this but it was you're like, your lining is clearing up in your stomach. And I was like, is this normal? I had no clue. And um, I was like, is this normal? Your circadian rhythm of sleep is so disturbed because you don't sleep in alcohol. You never get to that REM sleep. And so I had no clue. So I was waking up at all hours, even though I'm, I'm sober now for, I don't know, less than 30 days, but your, your clock is adjusting and of getting better sleep. And I don't think I was into maybe 10 days until I got really good sleep. And then I started noticing, um, just, it, it was just weird that uh, the cravings for sweets. And I was like, I never wanted sweets before. And I was just like, I was in the pantry with whipped cream and anything I could get my hands on that was sweet, but yet I was still losing weight. Well, it wasn't weight. It was inflammation. You've seen the before and afters you have them up on Silvertown and it's, yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was, um, it was just, I was bloated. I was bloated and I, I remember going to a doctor in, in the thick of it also. And he was telling me, you need to stop drinking. I, he didn't even know. I didn't tell him. He was like, that's a beer, not a beer belly, but he said, that's a, a, a stomach of alcohol. You need to stop drinking. And I was like, I didn't say anything. I was just ashamed. I was ashamed. But um, then he saw me later. He actually recently went back to him and he just, he goes, you have left me in awe. I can't believe you did it. And I, you know, I, I just, 
I believe that it was everything that IAS helped because as I was well, going- let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that, Viv, because yeah. here you were, you were ashamed. You didn't post for seven days. And I think this is really important for people to understand that they find themselves, I don't even think that, I didn't know it in the beginning. Did you know that you were like building a sober crew that you could depend on these people around you? Not at all. I, you know, I, I never knew that any of this existed. If had I, then I probably would have quit a lot sooner. <laughs> you know, I probably would have because then I had, I thought I was the odd man out because I felt in, in, in my industry again, everybody's doing well. Everybody hasn't, uh, they're not homeless. They're functioning. And we all drink the same amount, if not more, you know, um, I, I know that the, the reason I say that alcoholism hides in shame is because I was going to the parties, the mitzers that we have, um, because we there, you know, we all get together. It, it, it's mitzers. And I was drinking at the mitzers, but because I didn't want anybody to see my alcoholism get out of hand, what I did was I'd come back home and on my way back home, I'd buy a couple of bottles of wine because it wasn't sufficient. I wasn't drunk. And I, it, I sat on the couch and I drank until I blocked out. And that was, <clears throat> I, I now understand that I wasn't the only one. It through IES, I saw people would post, honestly, I remember, I can't remember who uh, the name or the tagline that she goes by, but it impacted me when she was, when she was saying that she had to travel for business and that the flight was, I want to say an hour or two hours. And she had to carry um, crown Royals in water bottle or vodka and water bottle. So, um, and she was trying to get it through customs or something. I can't remember what it was, but the point was she didn't know how she was going to make it from point A to point B without alcohol. And she, her career was one of, you know, that it was a great career. And she was like, and this is what I've been hiding. And when she was started posting like that, I was like, oh my God, these people are really honest. And I was like, okay, so then I'm going to be honest. I need to be honest. I need the, I need to be honest because somebody somewhere at some point, including myself, will read this. And on the days that I have shitty days, I'm going to come back and I'm going to look to see how this all started and where I began. And if I ever want to go back to that, just remember. But I, I was looking through my notes of, of my timeline and I, I, I posted so much. I want to drink and I want to drink and I want to drink. And everybody would come in and say, you don't need to drink. We're all here for you. It's just one day at a time. Just hold on for a second. And that would encourage me. And I, at, I couldn't sit down and work because, and I didn't understand this. My mind, uh, I could focus on daily tasks. I could focus on cleaning, you know, the house. I could focus on things like that. But when it came to business, it was, thank God me and my uh, husband would work together. I would just hand them a file because I couldn't sit down and focus on it. And 
he would finish it out. And I was like, I posted, am I going crazy? What's happening? How come I can't do my business? How come I can't structure? And Jen Rose on there, um, she posted, uh, you know, you look up uh, cognitive overload. Uh, What's happening is your subconscious mind is basically telling you, you cannot drink, you will not drink, you cannot drink, you will not drink. And your subconscious is running. At the same time, you're trying to put a file together. You're running two drives at the same time in your mind. It's cognitive overload. You can't, you're trying to override one that's been firing all the time. And now you're trying to, and you're trying to change your behavior. So that's why you're having these conflicts. Well, to understand that, and I saw YouTubes on it, I was like, okay, it's not permanent. It'll come back. And it's just going to take a little bit of time. That was so satisfying to me. And this madness that's going on in your mind, somebody was able to reach out and, and, and tell you what would help you out within this community to give you an idea. Oh, wow. I can look this up and see what's going on. And then you realize, wow, I can, this isn't permanent. This is impermanent because that's through it. And I got through it. I got through it. And then um, I realized also uh, at about my, for me, it was a hundred days. And I realized this and it, and it, uh, my sober coach would tell me you're going to go through a big thaw. Now, this is something I really want everybody to really pay attention because this is something that happens around a hundred days. It seems like with people, right? Yeah. Take it. Cause I've seen it now going back to it. happens around 80 days to uh, up to 120 days in that time frame. Cause everybody's different. Right. Um, so the big thought, what is that? So I came around a hundred days and I posted, I was so happy. And I think I was at 101 days and all of a sudden this, sadness hit me so bad and I posted I'm sad and I don't know why I'm sad that I'm sad but as the day was progressing it was getting worse and I just I started feeling as though the inside of my body my brain was being ripped to shreds it was it was as if a pain that you can actually feel. And it was painful. All these thoughts started flooding back. Like, like, are you going to relapse? How about your relationship? Your relationship's not going to do well. Um, You're no longer that person. How how are you going to survive in that new relationship? Look at all the shitty things that you fucked up and look at what a horrible person you've been. How is anybody ever going to forgive you? It was torture. And I called up my sober coach and I said, I have to talk to you. She got on the phone and I was bawling, curled up, like just curled up. And she's like, what's wrong? And I just couldn't even catch my breath. And she's like, what's wrong? And I said, I'm just scared. I'm scared. I'm feeling this way. I'm scared that I'm, I have all these thoughts coming. And she goes, I told you about the big thaw. And I was like, what the fuck is a big thaw? <laughs> she's like, she's like telling me, I told you, you haven't felt feelings. Anytime a feeling came up, you drink, you blacked out. So 
you started getting pissed at someone, you drink, you passed out. You were happy over something, you drink, you passed out. You were sad, you drink, you passed out. So she goes, when did you get to experience the feelings? And I was like, well, I guess not. No, you're right. The alcohol is still in you from day one that you stopped to about 80. It's still in your organs up to a year. But from one to 120, your organs are still, it's still in you. It's still in you, your mental, your mind, everything. So you're thawing out. The alcohol is leaving now, finally. And the emotions are bubbling up of anything that you repressed and you handled your scandal with alcohol. So I couldn't reach for the bottle anymore. A baby cries. What do you give it? Pacifier. Baby cries, pacifier. Baby cries, pacifier. You no longer give that baby a pacifier on the day that it's screaming. It's going to scream for bloody hell because it doesn't have its comfort. Same thing with alcoholism. You're crying and you're crying because you don't have that coping mechanism to soothe yourself. And it's you're gone. just overwhelmed because this was like a tidal wave, a glacier, right? Yeah. That thought yeah. out really quick and just bombarded, carpet bombed you. Absolutely. I, I stayed up, like I said, I was like trying to understand. And when she was telling me, she goes, well, you know what? Nobody ever died. No one dies from feeling. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> my mind, like, giving her the finger, like, what the hell? You know, what do you mean nobody dies of feelings? Feelings are like clouds. They're in constant movement. And it was like, it was funny, but then it wasn't. And then I went on IAS and I posted that she, my sober coach just told me it's the big thaw that I'm going through because chef uh, told me uh, when I posted, I'm sad. He was like, Oh, I remember that. Yeah. That happened to me. He's like, you got to be very vigilant. You have to be very vigilant with your sobriety right now, because those thoughts can sometimes be too much to handle. So just be, be, be on your game, basically, is what he was telling me. It's okay. Be on your game. Okay, so then there's somebody validating. And more and more people, um, Tammy uh, came on there and she goes, Viv, everybody uh, gets to have a, a sad day. Even sober people get sad days. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Even sober people, even people that don't have a drinking problem have shitty days. And that made me feel better. And so I came back and I posted about the big thaw. So this is what I was told. I'm just thawing out in these feelings. If it happens, you know, if it happens to you guys, don't get scared. It's just, we've never had these emotions and we're looking for the pacifier. The pacifier is not being given to us. We just got to go through it. And at that point, um, uh, it was peanut that came on and she's like I love peanut yeah I love her too she she was so she was badass she is badass she was like hey can you please go ask your sober coach how long this shit lasts <laughs> so I was like okay I'm not the only <laughs> one going through it <laughs> and I was telling my sober coach dude this is funny because I would go to my sober coach and I would say hey my community wants to know 
how long does this last? And I, and I come back to my community and I'm telling them the medicine woman says, <laughs> and it was like, it was this whole thing that I had going on with IAS and, and my sober coach because she could shed light. They were going through it with me. The people that like, that had already time on them, uh, could come back and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. So you have all of the support. And on top of the support, you have the validation of those feelings because no matter how much you want to explain to your significant other, your loved ones, your whoever, I mean, it could be whoever's right next to you. They will never know what it is to feel what you felt going through alcoholism, those feelings. So from there on, you've dove into your sobriety and then all of a sudden you get to a point where you're looking at your life and then you, man, you've made some big changes. Take us there. I was looking for my sobriety around five months. I'm thought out about, yeah, about four or five months. I'm thought out. I'm living this life that I'm thinking, okay, where's the ribbon cutting ceremony? Where's my parade? And I've been sober all these months. And then all of a sudden I start seeing the problems in my marriage and I start seeing his addictions and things that when you, when I was drinking, when I was drinking, the focus was on me because my drinking was out of control. So I'm the focus. I'm the person that's doing all this. Absolutely. But also there were problems in the marriage already and around me that were muted by my alcohol intake. So when, once you pull out the alcohol, once those feelings are being processed, then I started looking at the dysfunction that I had going on around me. And then it was in our marriage that I was being more bold towards him. And I was like, dude, you know, you need to, you need to get your shit together. We've mourned, we've done what we've done. We've cried. Now you need to get your shit together because I have my shit together. And we just couldn't cope and he couldn't cope. And he said that he was so afraid of seeing me get my shit together. His, his main concern in my three, first three months was to hold that space, which he did. And I am very appreciative towards him because he held that space for me to get sober. He helped me out. He did everything. But I was so oblivious what everything else was going wrong that when I became now a sober conscious woman, I'm looking at him because nobody's looking at me anymore. And I was like, you need to get your shit together. And he, he didn't want to. And he was just caught up in his stuff, in his addictions. And it was triggering me. It was triggering me to the point that I posted about this unconscious or unconsciously. We were having fights, really big blowout fights. Now I'm conscious. I'm not, you know, flipping TVs, but, um, but I am bringing everything. Now it's very uh, to the surface, everything that's wrong. And he was leaving alcohol and he'd walk out the room. And I don't know if it was conscious and I don't know if it was unconscious, but the fact was, it was going to provoke a relapse. And I realized that I had two options as I was going through it. 
I could stick around and relapse. Or I could choose myself and move. When I was on one of my trips, and I posted about this, um, we would go out on vacation, he would drink. We would both drink, get shit-faced. You heard, you know, his birthday. So those those hardwired routines were still in him. He didn't drink often in the house. As a matter of fact, my sober coach asked, please have him remove the alcohol from your home for three months. If he doesn't have a problem with alcohol, then he should be able to remove the alcohol from you for three months. If he wants to drink, ask him nicely to go to the bar or go to the liquor store and, you know, he can drink right there or whatever. So, and he did, he was like, no, Viv, I want you to get sober, this and that. So he never, he didn't drink. But then on this one trip, he was tossing back shots and I didn't like the way he was treating me. So I was crying and I called up my sober coach and I told her, you know, I don't like the way he's treating me. He's drinking and it's just turning him into, this is what we used to do on our trips and I'm no longer drinking. So now he's, you know, now he's drinking and now I can see the drunk guy because I'm no longer drunk. And she was like, well, are you a tree? And I was like, no, well then move. Set your boundaries. I, if, you know, she's like, I go, I can do that. And she goes, of course you can do that. You can set a boundary. She's like, I felt it because I had fucked up so bad in my past that I had to not have a voice to come back and say, hey, I won't tolerate this behavior because I had done so much to hurt my family, myself, him, that I couldn't, I couldn't voice an opinion. And she goes, no, Viv, I think I was four months at that point. She's like, if you don't like how someone is treating you and they are, are drinking, then you basically say you want this vacation you're, and you're going to be drinking, you get two drinks max. That's it. If you don't have a problem with alcohol and you're going to be drinking on this vacation, you're going to have a vacation by yourself and just get up and go somewhere else. And I did. I came back and I, that's what I said. Go ahead and have at it. I'm just not going to be there for it. And I moved and he decided to stop drinking. When all of these things are coming to a head in our marriage and he's not stopping, I could just see that it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And in a way, I think unconsciously it was getting worse to, for my relapse. And as I was seeing things, because now I'm sober. So I'm now I'm preparing myself for my exit because I'm trying to talk to this person. I'm trying to, to tell them this is wrong. We need to stop our shenanigans. We need to go get help. We need to go get therapy. We need to go get, a, 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 you know, a, a, a coach, a therapist for a marriage. We went once and I, nothing good came out of that. A screaming match was going on. Um, why did you say that? Why did you say this? Why did you say that? And it was like, he didn't want to hear it. And it was horrible. So I thought this isn't going to work. Um, so my mom at that point decided that she was, I said, look, the market's hot. If you're going to sell your house, sell your house now. And I'll do the financing and I'll buy the house with you 50-50. So we did that and bought a house, moved my mom in. And I was like, you know, you don't want to stop. I'm going to have a relapse. I need to move. And he was like, I'm going, I'm going to get help. He got help. 
from someone. And, and I believe that we have to be careful because this someone uh, that said she was a coach, <coughs> he didn't go to my coach. It was, and it was, she wouldn't take him because it would have been a conflict as well. But um, long story short is she basically allowed him to, while he was doing to supposed to help him, told him, we don't like the word never. We don't like those words. Never is, is, is too harsh for someone that's in the beginning. If you relapse, okay, just relapse. Tell me about it. And then we'll just move. Well, you're telling an addict that. Well, not only that, let's just put this where it is. This, this individual wasn't even uh, married and she ended up giving marriage advice and she was charging you guys a lot of money, 17000 or $7,000 a pop every four months. And then, um, well, where you're still broken, you need more fixing. And she was taking more money. And, and that's what you're talking about when you say you need to watch out where you get your advice from. Exactly. And, and I had told my sober coach about what was happening. I said, he's not stopping. I was already moved out of the house, but it wasn't a definite that we were broken up. It was, well, uh, let's let me- just, let's get that there too. Not only did you move out of the house, you two were in, in business together with finance. You shut, this is what you tell everybody what you did. I mean, this <laughs> is how far you went for your sobriety. <clears throat> yeah. So when I was seeing that the sober coach was basically uh, not doing anything, I spoke to my sober coach and I said, you know, she's not helping him. It's um, she's telling them, you know, it, we never say never and just call me up if you do relapse. I said, cause I remember my sober coach, she was telling me, Viv, I don't care if you have to go to bed at 7 PM, your witching hour, you're in bed at 7 PM. You're going to go sleep before you go drink. It, when I went to, trips um i I did a a trip with people that were drinking and i was like i was scared because i thought oh my god what if i relapse she went through visualization okay what does viv do she gets to the bar with these people and what are you going to do let's walk it through and we talk would talk it out and she goes i want to replay that visualize it so when i was there I caught already everybody was drinking and I was like, Hey, Virgin Margarita or frozen pina colada Virgin. It was already, she was giving me strategies. Um, it was, you know, I knew what she was telling me. She was like, okay, you need to learn how to soothe yourself. You're having a bad day. Go take a bath. I was in the bath so much. I felt like I was a mop the first three months. All I would do is just go take a bath. I was just feeling sad. I'd go take a uh, a bath. I was feeling angry. I'd go take a bath. I needed to learn soothing techniques in order to love myself in different ways that were not going to hurt me. And and those were the techniques. And those are just in the beginning. So you learn how to self-soothe because nobody's there to hug you or give you that, that warm thing that you need to give yourself. The, the, the mantra or the, the thought process is you have to start creating a life where you don't need to escape from. And that's what I start, started doing is I started creating the life I did not have to escape from. So what, what ended up happening is I bought a house. I moved my mom. I moved my daughter. She was living with my mom. I moved her out. I moved my mom first 30 years uh, at the same home. 
Then I, I moved her into her new home. Then I moved my daughter. And then I finally, I moved myself out. And I was like, all right, you do this. You try to get, get yourself better. And then we'll reconvene because the lady told him that it was going to take about four months. And you're he seeing the difference between your sober coach and the shit that she's it telling was, him. Oh, yeah. It was to keep him on the chain. So at the end of four months, well, you need more help. Give me another $7,000. I just, I could see it. It was just preying on him. And it was, it was perfect for him as, as the, uh, someone that has an addiction, um, but not perfect for, for us. Right, because she's telling him he can continue on his addiction. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so when I, when I left, one of the last things was the sober, this, this coach, um, I, it, it was, it just got really worse that I, I felt it wasn't getting any better with him and it was getting worse. The attitude was getting worse. Everything was worse. So I, and, and at this point we still had some communication because, um, I thought it'll get better. He's going to come out of it just like I did. He wasn't coming out of it. So I thought to myself and I was broken. I, my heart broke over what was going on, but I thought to myself, I'm going to relapse and it's him or me. And I cannot set myself on fire to keep another warm. I refuse to do that. I'm looking out for me. I, I need my selfish. What you really look at selfish is actually not doing what the will of another is. If someone ever calls you selfish, it means that you're not doing their will. So who is the selfish one? Because I'm looking out for my sobriety. No. So I called up my, I, I didn't even tell him. I told him I had threatened him that I was going to do it. We had a business together. I called up uh, my company and I said, I am no longer in business with this person. Please uh, sever my contract with him. And I'm hundred percent commission on my own. Send him the email, let him know and let him sign his papers. And I cut him off. So this is what you did. Yes, you what moved I did. out of your house. And then you severed business relations with your husband. Yep. You, you shut and your business down. It was profitable. It was, and, <laughs> and moved away. I, I mean, you, nobody can really know what other people are going through in their sobriety. And you have fought your ass off for what you have. Oh and yeah. That it doesn't end in a bad story. Does it? No, it doesn't. Um, but I do want to say that in those moments, it was, it, it was difficult. It was very difficult to maintain sobriety. It wasn't easy. It was just that I just played the tape forward. I had a bunch of people and I posted on IAS what I was going through. I was very honest about it. I was very honest about being heartbroken. I was very honest that when I moved to this, that new home, I had no furniture and I was sleeping on the floor. I remember you posting about some of this. I do. It, it, uh, it was very honest. And I just thought, one, I want to keep a record of this. And two, for anybody else that is having a hard time, I want them to know that they're not alone. We're, we all, we're, we're in this together we're in this together. It's, you know, it's, I, I'm pretty much, I refused 
to be bitter. I refuse to, um, I never call it recovery. I call it discovery because recovery to me, to me means that we're going to recover something that we lost. I drank for so many years. I don't even know that person. I'm in discovery. I'm creating. I'm creating a new way of life, a new way of being. Things that I thought I wasn't capable of, I've, I've been, I've done. Sobriety was my biggest hurdle to attain, and I'm here. And so and- the cool thing is with you, Viv, is you're discovering this stuff. Now you're sharing this stuff on IAS where other people can see what you're doing to maintain your sobriety. And, um, but things started getting better where you guys, you and your husband are actually, uh, things weren't just didn't end there, but things are getting better. Right. Yeah. Well, what ended up happening with him is after I left, it gave him time to think by himself. And at that point he was like, he told me he, he thought I was miserable and I was blaming her for my misery. And that's why I was in my side of my addictions. Okay. I'm her no longer being his advisor that was collecting $7,000 every four months. <laughs> yeah. And, but he was like, I'm miserable. I've got this advisor not advising me well. And he's like, and I'm miserable and I'm by myself now. Who else am I going to blame? There's nobody around me. Everybody, everybody left the party. And I'm here in my own party and I'm not enjoying this. And that's when he just, he snapped and he reached out and it was through our, you know, he reached out and he was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, I, I, you know, I can't do this. I can't, it's my sobriety. It's, I can't, I can't be around it. Well, he went ahead and he found a therapist and he found an addiction therapist and he it did all, a lot of the work. And now our counseling sessions are way different, way different. Now we're too, I, I want to say, I don't want to say broken, but you got to break. You got to break. It, it's a breakdown for a breakthrough. If you don't break, your mindset is still going to be in the same. You got to get, it, you get cracked open. And you get real with yourself and he got real with himself. So when we attend, when we're attending our therapy sessions, it's not no longer the blame game. It's so more you guys of got, you guys got, you're doing therapy together now. Yeah. Therapy together. And he does his individual um, addiction. And session. you're still married. And I'm still married. I and love that. I love that you guys are working through it, even though it takes a lot sometimes to really get each other's attention for your sobriety. I love that, that you're, you guys are, you're able to work through this. That's badass. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I I just think that you just um, become sometimes, unfortunately we enable ourselves and the person that we're with because we just don't know anything different. And this whole thing, like I said, is discovery. We're discovering who we are. We're discovering new pathways. We're discovering and, and making new memories. Now, um, in, in the current, like I said, 
in the beginning, I did a bucket list of things that I wanted to do instead of sitting on the couch, which is something my sober coach told me to do. Like make a bucket list of things that you want to do in sobriety. What have you been wanting to do, but you've been only on the sidelines? What have you been not capable of doing? I wanted to see major DJs from all around the world that I had been listening to when I would be in my drunken stupor and I would look up on YouTube and, um, but, and hoping that I was there and hope is a beggar. You will yourself there. And I willed myself to, into sobriety. I willed myself to get, you know, IAS. IAS was just, oh, you guys are amazing. Everybody's amazing. I can't thank you guys enough. I really can't. Um, every individual, even though I, you know, we, we don't hold, see each other like that, but we see each other. Well, we're a village and I'm I'm the same as you. I would not be sober today without IAS. And it it just gives us a place to, to learn, to unload, to do all these different amazing things. And not only that, I have, I have more friends today in IAS than I've ever had in my life. I've always been a loner. And you know what? It's people that I that I've I've gotten to meet virtually, and they they've become very very important. And right, I, I wanted to ask you too: Are you still around some of your the sober crew that you started with? You know what? Um, some of them have in their sobriety. <clears throat> some of them have um, gone off and done their own, and I think they kind of left the app because probably either they could handle it because I'm, I'm friends with them on Instagram and, and they're thriving and some of them have relapsed but you know what I always say the only reason why you don't see my relapses is because I'd never know of IAS but my relapses were those sober experiments that I couldn't even do 30 days I'd been you know trying and trying without any success for a good god 10 years to be honest with you because my blackouts on the weekends, that was an indication of, of how it, you know, I was starting. And with each blow that life was giving me, I, it was sinking me deeper into alcoholism. You probably can't even count the mornings you woke up. This is the last day. And by that, that Year. bewitching hour, you were back to drink and forgot you'd even said that that morning. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling shitty and saying that I'm just going to you know, at the end of it, I'm just going to have these two shots and then I'm, I'm not going to drink this af- afternoon. And it would just come around and I just started to get the sweats and I didn't want, you know, I was just feeling horrible. So you're thriving in your sobriety right now. And you just had a really uh, awesome Halloween. Uh, I really, you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I went to go see the second DJ that I've been to um, within the past 30 days. I saw, saw Carl Cox, Benny Benazi. And these are DJs that, I mean, they've been around for ages and I had been following, but had never been able to go see them. So and when you go see there, them, there's people drinking around you. Oh, yeah. They're, it's a normal. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's drinking, partying. But, but uh, Viv doesn't need it. No. Uh, you know what? I just honestly, the way that I feel about it is that I did the drinking and I know where that led. Let me, let me see what it feels like to make memories, walk out on my own two feet, you know? Um, so you're going into these places, no liquid courage, and you're challenging yourself 
to be even better than you were when you were drinking? I think my sense of humor is a lot more vibrant now than when I drink a short fuse. And now it's like, you know, I just laugh at the most randomness things. I would love people watching, um, just listening to walking in there. And like I said, with that mindset, because it's a lie, it's a lie that I need alcohol. It's a lie that we've been fed. It's a lie that, um, that we can't talk to people. People, you know, are, we're born and bred to be sociable individuals. Even so you're all laughing, like, you're dancing. Yeah. I, yeah I you're sober. In. You're doing this shit sober, sober. Yeah, I rolled in at 3 a.m. It took me two days to recoup, but. <laughs> <laughs> to 3 a.m. having a blast. <laughs> having a blast, having a blast, dancing my ass off. And, you know, the, and the memories are just incredible because I, I mean, my husband, it was his first time going and seeing a gym. And so that was the first time I went with my daughter. And we just, that's the other thing that now my daughter, my, both my daughters, which before probably were hesitant to invite me out at outings. Now they're like, mom, come here. Let's go out to this baby shower. Um, I I threw her uh, baby reveal. I was the one that found out the gender before anybody else did. And I was the one, I mean, those are really special things, you know, that they probably wouldn't have entrusted me with. Um, my daughter going to that DJ concert, um, seeing him and us together sharing that time before that would have never happened. Of course, I don't blame them. Your life is thriving um, socially with your family in every aspect. And, and I'm sure your career is just like still going through the roof. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm getting back pieces of myself every day. And it's, you know what, life is different. I'm not going to say it's the same. It's different. It's better. Why is it better? Because um, one, my relationships with my daughters are in, in discovery. We're discovering each other. I am talking to them. I am listening to them. I'm a better listener. I'm a better mother. I'm not jumping to conclusions and judgmental because I learned that from everybody on IAS, from my sober coach. And not only that, you're giving them great advice. Where now, oh, yeah. I know that my kids are coming to me. Yeah. And, and wanting never, good advice. Well, not only that, if they called me past seven o'clock, past nine o'clock, what kind of advice could I give them? Right. You know? Yeah, I just um, think I, it's amazing what you've been through and where you're going. And we're not done with you. You're going to come over because we're going to, I'm, uh, we're working on getting these rewired uh, support groups going. You're going to come over there with us into that. You're going to keep doing more. Um, I've given you like this blank canvas. If you want to yeah. do some podcasting because you really have some great insights that I think you can help with other people. And I, I just think that you're, Hashtag badass sober warrior. <laughs> I told you, I think you're hashtag fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The sober town community, we're a village and we're all pitching in to help each other out. You're part of that village. I can't wait to see where we're going to go with these because I'm totally into rewiring pathways and all that, that I've been in. I'm empowered Viv, and you're yeah. empowered. You have did this basically pretty much 
on your own with IAS and a sober coach. That's it. That's, That's it, it, baby. <laughs> to where you're so empowered, you you like destroyed your business, um, oh, yeah. bought a house with your mom, moved in with her just to get your your husband's attention. And <laughs> right. That's empowerment. That's you're not powerless, Viv. You're 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 empowered. Boundaries, 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 boundaries. And you're going to be able to start sharing that stuff with us, too, um, which is really cool. And um, I just I thank you so much for sharing this and sitting down. No, thank you for having me here. So well, as soon as you right in the beginning, way back when, because I, I kind of lost track of you for a minute. But when you gave sent us your before and afters, I'm like, this lady is brave, right? Oh. You didn't even really know who Silvertown was. We're just building this website and you give us your before and afters. And I was, I was just like, like amazed. Any way I can help and give back what's so, been given to the freely. You also have your Instagram page that's all about sobriety. Sober I Thrive. So Sober I Thrive on Instagram. Yes. On so Instagram. Sober I Thrive on Instagram, which even she's so you're so far out there. Even a family member recently is like um, your uncle was like, really, it's, you, you got embarrassed. Oh, yeah. He called up my mom, tell her to stop, stop posting. And my mom goes, well, she's, I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. And he was like, I, but I am. He's embarrassed that you're sober. He's embarrassed that I'm sober. Yeah. Yeah. But so, he's probably got family members falling on their face, drunk and uh, face planning and they're accepted, but we're not accepted. Well, here's the news for everybody. Um, sobriety is the new fashion as dismiss as, you know, and it's yeah. cool. Yeah, absolutely. Sobriety is the new fashion. You know what I say? Rehab is better than Botox. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it is. Rehab is. No kidding. It is. That's badass. I love that. Okay. We're going to go ahead and close. And then uh, I just want to thank everybody for joining us. And you guys are going to be seeing a lot more of Sober I Thrive. Uh, it's Viv, a.k.a. Sober I Thrive. And you can find her on Instagram. And then you're going to be seeing, we're going to be seeing more of you here too. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And All remember, right. everybody, pour the poison down the sink. Boom. <laughs>